We shouldn't be surprised that as the day of the Lord's coming approaches prior to that day, uh, we will witness apostasy, the love of many will grow cold. Those phenomena may come to expression in the form of the emergence in a single person who wields perhaps state power but religious influence within the church. And that will be a marker, at least a sign, that Christ's coming is drawing near. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 67, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for joining us. In our series of tough theological topics, you'll recall last week Dr. Venema spoke on the rapture, a contentious topic in evangelical circles. Staying on track with end times subject matter, we pivot here now to the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. Who is he? What is his role in redemptive history? Dr. Venema answers these and more here on this week's episode. So aside from the rapture, one other element of eschatology that is fascinating to consider, I would think, is this idea of uh, the Antichrist, Antichrist, or man of sin, man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Uh, a mysterious figure, to be sure, whether it's literal, he is literal, or symbolic. Uh, many in history have tried identifying him, you know, whether he was Hitler or Richard Nixon or you know, who else? Dr. Venom, help us understand uh, what the Antichrist is and what role he'll play, if any, before our Lord's return. Well, you uh, posed the question in terms of the language, the Antichrist. I did. I used the definite article there, didn't I? You did, (laughs) which maybe begs the question just a little, because I think one of the most important things to notice about this whole topic is not only that there are antecedents and some of the language in the New Testament, including this passage, are derived from visions that were given to Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel, um, is that in the New Testament, the term antichrist as referring to a distinct, definite individual is relatively rare. I may be mistaken on this, but perhaps but one time, 1 John 2, verse 18, I believe. The Apostle John makes reference to a coming of the Antichrist. And many have come before. Right, which refers to a very common phenomenon in the New Testament, that is the plural is used. Even in our Lord's discourse in Matthew 24, He speaks about as the future unfolds and as the day approaches of the end, there will be these false prophets, but there are also pseudo-Christoi, false Christs. Now, that's not the word antichrist, and maybe a little bit about the word itself wouldn't hurt. Anti-Christ, anti means instead of. Uh, the, The idea is one who is a pretender, or who makes claims respecting himself that are easily uh, taken in a way whereby people are deceived. Uh, he, he's a stand-in. 
uh, one who arrogates to himself a position either in what he says or what is said or what he says that is not rightfully his. And that sense, like all of the signs of the times, and this is one of the great things that uh, Anthony Hukuma argues in his book when he treats the signs of the times, they're all of them to be seen within the context of Christ having come. And by way of unbelieving response and opposition to Christ, you have the emergence. You wouldn't have anti-Christ if there weren't the Christ. Right. And I think that says something significant about all these signs, as uh, Hukuma likes to argue, rather than seeing them as fearful prospects that Christ's cause will be defeated, we should rather see them as futile flailing and uh, attempts that will never ultimately succeed in opposing the truth concerning Christ and opposing thereby Christ himself. So you find in um, the epistles of John, in addition to the text I mentioned, where he makes reference to a yet future coming of the Antichrist, there are any number of uh, references in the plural to Antichrists who already are present at the time of the writing of his epistles, known to the the churches to whom his Catholic epistles were mm-hmm. first sent. Uh, and they all have characteristically the feature, especially in the Gospel, or in the epistles of John, of opposing the teaching, the truth concerning God's Son, the eternal Word having become flesh, which tells us something about the whole subject of Antichrist. Our focus is always initially in almost continually on will there be a particular person who is the Antichrist? How do we identify this person? How do I know this is the Antichrist? What will it be like? What will that mean in terms of the time approaching of Christ's coming? What we miss is that throughout the entire period between the first and second comings of our Lord, uh, in the age of the church's ministry of the gospel of Christ to the nations, The church can expect, even as was true in the first century, but every century since, that there will arise both within and outside of the church those whose teaching will oppose the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work, who will be a temptation and an occasion for the church to be tested in her loyalty and devotion to the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of his person, the truth of his saving work. And therefore, this is a sign, like all of the signs, that characterizes the whole interadvental period. Now, I don't say all of that to avoid the question. Uh, We do have to deal with 2 Thessalonians 2, where we have language about the man of lawlessness. Who is Paul talking about there? Or what is Paul talking about there? Well, like In our earlier segment, he's writing on the occasion of a difficulty in the church. Um, He's addressing a misunderstanding or a conviction among some within the church in Thessalonica that the Lord Jesus Christ um, has perhaps already come, some sort of early version of (laughs) hyper-preterism. that the return of Christ is already taking place, and he's <laughs> he's rebuking them right up front now concerning the coming, the parousy of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or even a letter, putatively, seemingly coming from us to the effect that the day of Lord has come. So he's going to 
address this word about the coming future, at least not yet having occurred, coming of this mysterious man of lawlessness as a kind of signal, not until this occurs should we too quickly uh, draw the conclusion that Christ has come or Mm. the end is upon us. Because before he comes, there will be this mysterious man of lawlessness. I have to say this right up front. Um, He doesn't use the word antichrist. Right. I think it's B.B. Warfield who once coined the term composite. When we think about the Antichrist, we compose or we draw together passages like this, the man of lawlessness, the passage in 1 John 2, verse 18, about a future coming Antichrist. And then we go to the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 13 and following, 13 and 17, where you have this mysterious beast, the first beast, and then a second beast, whom we're told in chapter 16 of Revelation is the false prophet. And then we return to that set of beasts and the ancient enemy of God's people, the dragon and the harlot Babylon in chapter 17 and following. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that yet. I'm making this point. I'm not necessarily opposing the creation through a drawing together of these various strands of scriptural testimony, suggesting that they all refer to or at least lend some insight into what we may expect regarding the future emergence of one figure who will sort of draw together in his own person the spirit of Antichrist and all the Antichrists that have preceded him and or ever will emerge in history. I'm, I am issuing, however, a cautionary note. And the cautionary note is, if you take the book of Revelation, for example— The language of the beast or the beasts, again, goes back to Daniel, and they're distinguished. You have the great trinity in chapter 13 of the dragon, his son, in a sense, who's a counterfeit son, unlike the true son of the true God. The dragon's a counterfeit God. The first beast is a counterfeit God as well, but son of the dragon— agent, instrument of the dragon, and then the third beast, likewise, who I said earlier is referred to as the the uh, beast who is the spirit of false prophecy mm-hmm. in, in Revelation 16. You have what uh, Vern Poitras, I think, nicely refers to, and it's a theme in the book of Revelation, you, these enemies of God are all counterfeiters. Yeah. And there's an unholy trinity, a counterfeit trinity. And in the book of Revelation, while I'm on this topic, as a little bit of an aside, the first beast seems to be associated particularly with the Roman Empire and possibly subsequently, depends on how you read the book of Revelation, future embodiments of state power harnessed and used, employed to oppose Christ and his church. Um, Whereas the, the second of the beasts is more the the idea of false prophecy opposing the testimony concerning Jesus. And that sense links up very legitimately with the notion of the spirit of Antichrist as opposing the teaching concerning Christ. Um, those are particular and real visions that are symbolic, but they represent reality 
of what was transpiring already, and that's the truth of preterism. And when you read Revelation, it's already present, but it doesn't cease to be present. And so you have the same phenomenon there that you have with respect to Antichrist. You have a multiplicity of Antichrists who represent a spirit of opposition to Christ and the teaching concerning Christ. Does that get then embodied in a particular person. Now back to 2 Thessalonians 2, because if there's any passage that warrants the argument that we should anticipate one person who, through the use of state power, but particularly by way of his usurping and uh, seeking to deceive the church, because we'll see that the province within which this man of lawlessness emerges and where he does his worst the temple of is the temple of God, yeah. which I take, uh, and I have, there's a long history, I'm in good company, uh, not with all, but with most Reformed uh, theologians, to be a reference to the church, which is the new covenant temple. So this is a figure, this man of lawlessness, who will arise within the context of the church itself. Which is why he'd be so deceiving. Yes. He does, as the passage says, I don't know if we need to read it. Perhaps I should, then it makes a little more sense to my hearers on this. Uh, Paul goes on here to say, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, that is Christ's parousia, will not come until the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until it is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Well, there's a lot in there. But basically the profile of this man of lawlessness is a figure who within the church, and pretending to be, remember my comment about anti instead of Christ, in the place of Christ, he seeks to usurp the role of Christ and to deceive many, performing signs and wonders, Uh, that he's a man of lawlessness is consistent with the principle of this occurs within a period of great rebellion. Uh, Maybe I should mention here, maybe it confuses things, but uh, I agree with those interpreters who associate this description of the rebellion and a sort of prior to the coming of Christ emergence of a figure who embodies that rebellion and leads many astray with the little season at the end of Revelation. Maybe this is a good segue to our next session. This is a spiritual rebellion? Uh, A spiritual rebellion and an attempt to lure away, to even if it were possible to use the language of our Lord in Matthew 24, to deceive the elect. This is on a mass global scale. Yes. Okay. I, uh, I should also mention here that if this man of lawlessness emerges within the church, you can understand why at the time of the Reformation for both Lutheran and Reformed uh, representatives, this looked very much like the Pope. Not a particular Pope, 
because they were sort of historicist in their view of the man of lawlessness. The here. papacy in general. The was papacy yeah. and the representative popes in their succession were setting themselves up within Christ, God's temple, and leading the church astray. It had become the false church in rebellion, in opposition to the teaching of the word of God, and even persecuting those who sought the church's reformation. That's a longstanding interpretation. Uh, it used to be embodied in the text of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but in most of the present-day Presbyterian church, there's been a little amendment there, so that's not nailed down quite so precisely. I still remember it's a little humorous to me that not too many years ago I read a news report that among the Lutherans, a particular body of Lutheranism that, I, that shall go unnamed, I'm pick, not wanting to pick on them, but they had at their assembly made it very emphatically clear that they still held to the view and subscribed wholeheartedly to it that the papacy was the man of well, lawlessness of Second uh, Thessalonians 2. Now, at his appearing, this we're, we're kind of jumping a little bit ahead here into our further discussion on the millennium, though, in Revelation 20. Right. That I language, mean to, yeah. what you use there of him of of the of the dragon of Satan being released for a little while would you see that in accordance here with 2 Thessalonians 2 corresponding with this great deception that will take place with this mysterious restrainer of whoever whatever that is being taken out of the way then? yes okay yeah and you know it's a pretty typical reform view that the angel of the lord who uh, first binds satan coming from heaven the angel Presumably during that little season when Satan is released and permitted to deceive the nations, uh, releases, acts to release. That's often associated with um, this language here that um, the restrainer or the that which restrains. Hmm. That's a huge topic in terms of reading this text because Paul the apostle uses language that is personal the one who restrains, and he uses language that is more generic, referring to a power or a working of some kind that restrains the emergence and the ascendancy of this man of lawlessness. And there have been, well, Beale in his commentary on Second Thessalonians points out that there are at least seven <laughs> fairly broad and commonly held interpretations of to what the apostle is referring. Uh, my view is, is that ultimately it's God himself yeah. who withdraws within his providence and working in history the restraints that he's previously imposed mm -hmm. by whatever means. And I, I still am sympathetic to Calvin's view that it's the— uh, and that associates well with the vision in Revelation 20 of the millennium— the no longer deceiving, now able to deceive. Sure. That the That the force that restrains as an instrument of God's coming kingdom as the nations are discipled is the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So you needn't go so far as the dispensationalists go and argue that they take the restrainer here to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy yeah. Spirit is withdrawn while well, that creates some other theological problems and difficulties um, I don't think you need to go there. I think it's easier to simply say, though we're not told in the text, so any view is at some point, 
an extrapolation from the text that, consistent with Scripture's teaching generally, uh, God acts in a way so as to withdraw the restraint that had previously been imposed. And um, you have a period of rebellion that is in contrast to the effectiveness and fruitfulness of the Word as it's being preached and taught through the church among the nations, that that will, in a manner of speaking, at least for, if I may borrow language from Revelation 20, for a little season, uh, no longer be as true as it had been previously. And there will be a period of general, and and I think that's a broadly biblical motif, without trying to know more than we know or lay it all out in some sort of a timeline that we've developed. I think the Scriptures warn us against that. We shouldn't be surprised. Um, We should anticipate and expect that as the day of the Lord's coming approaches prior to that day, uh, we will witness apostasy. The love of many will grow cold. There will be many false Christs and false prophets, but those phenomena may come to expression in the form of the emergence in a single person who wields perhaps state power but religious influence within the church, however you describe that. And that will be a marker, at least a sign, that Christ's coming is drawing near. I can't help but notice the similarities, too, there with Revelation 11, how the beast then comes out of the abyss and destroys and kills the two witnesses who then are raised up um, just a few days later. Do you see see the the correspondence there as well, just kind of maybe a different point of view of what's going on here? I do. And I think where we get into trouble is when we interpret these texts, we over-interpret them and over-interpret them when we're driven by an an unduly literalist. That is a one-to-one equation of the image itself with what will transpire in history according to God's purpose. It's always a mistake. The symbolism is what counts ultimately. What's the meaning of the, the vision's imagery? And to know the answer to those questions requires careful reading in the light of earlier testimony in the Old Testament prophecies of Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, others, and comparing Scripture with Scripture in order to sort out. Now, this is probably a dangerous thing for me to say, but when I'm at a point where I'm not quite sure what the answer is or I'm not ready to give a definitive answer, and that brings me to this big question, is is this imagery of the man of lawlessness merely a kind of personification? Uh, I don't have very good analogies for that. I've sometimes said to my students that, well, you, you all know who Uncle Sam is, right? Well, Uncle Sam is a figure on posters who, like an old man dressed in red, white, and blue, represents the entity called the United States of America. Is that what's going on here? This is not suggesting that we are to look for the person, one great figure who draws together and captures in an end-time context everything that belongs to antichrists and the beasts and everything associated with their opposition to Christ. 
Do we expect literally a particular Antichrist? And I have waffled on that, I'll be frank. I still lean in the direction, and I have good company here. Herman Rutterboss argues this in his uh, book on Paul and his treatment of this passage, that you really have to, at the end of the day, that's where uh, Anthony Hukuma comes out as well. The language is so specific and particular and even personal, the man of, he, that um, I think we have reason to presume that that's what is being described here. Uh, but having said all of that, I'm willing to be a little dogmatic, and that brings me back to I haven't lost my train of thought, Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss, who's great in the area of eschatology, also at one point made a rather, I don't know if it was a tongue-in-cheek comment, I don't think so, that the best interpretation of some of these more difficult texts as it relates to the future is their fulfillment. Um, or another way, I, the way I put that backhandedly is to say, don't hang or cling so tenaciously to your view of the future that if it doesn't unfold exactly the way you thought it was, there's no actual literal figure who emerges prior to our Lord's coming. That won't stand in the way of enthusiasm at his coming. Um, now, admittedly, that could be used as an easy way out uh, with respect to the passage. So back to my other point, it's my conviction that the likeliest reading of this text in terms of what Paul is teaching is that we should anticipate and not become unduly anxious or over-excited or of the opinion that Christ has come, that his coming will be preceded by what he describes here. In all my discussions with Dr. Venema on this subject matter, I always leave with this important point in mind. Concerning Antichrist, do not fear and do not try to nail down who or what it is. God's purposes and history will play out as he wills. Christ will one day come for his people and that that we can rest in. But you thought a conversation about the Antichrist could get interesting. Wait till next week when Dr. Venema explores Revelation 20 and the question of the millennium. Three hot button topics in a row for your consideration. Stay tuned for that next week. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.